Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Terry. How are you? I'm okay. It's uh, just a few days before the election on November 3rd, as we're recording part two of our reflections on sex, womanhood, and femininity. So it's very apt because uh, we'll be covering four episodes today. Episode 117 with Jennifer Block on her book, Everything Below the Waist, Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution. Episode 119, a Survivor Stories episode with Sophia on navigating the intersection of gender and race in healthcare. Episode 120 with Susan Bordeaux on sex and femininity in politics and its intersection with sexism and misogyny. And finally, episode 121 with Kyle Myers on Raising Them, Our Adventure in Gender Creative Parenting. So I'm feeling, as we record this, just a sense of heaviness because this topic, sex, womanhood, and femininity, even though we started it several months ago, and this is part two of our series, it resonates so much with me in terms of what is at the core of, as one person shared with me, American sickness. And so as we head into the election, issues of gender and gender inequality are so central to, I think, so many of the both political and economic and actually social issues as well that are on the ballot on Tuesday. What are your thoughts about that just general, you know, feeling and how are you doing? I am feeling apprehensive about what's going to happen on once November 3rd comes around. I I feel that even if Biden gets elected, I I feel that even if Biden has the most votes, I'm not sure if Republicans will allow all everybody's vote to count. And um, I'm a little bit nervous about what is going to happen one way or another, right? Even if uh, Biden wins by a landslide, Trump is still going to be in the office until January. And I feel like there's still so much harm that he could potentially do. So I just feel that the future is very uncertain. And in a lot of ways, I think it's, I'm afraid for what may possibly happen including violence and other things. This reminds me, this moment and this feeling that we're both referring to reminds me a lot of the myth that when you leave an abusive relationship, everything will be okay. And in actuality, when you leave is actually the most dangerous time in the relationship. That's when things escalate because you've set boundaries for the abuser and you said no, and possibly there's some external mechanism like an order of protection that's helping to enforce those boundaries. And so let's just say, you know, Biden wins, and that's that's the, the sort of stake in the ground that we may put. And it's like saying, no, you're, you have to leave the house, Mr. Abuser, and we have an enforcement mechanism. And, you know, from the perspective 
of a survivor, like being a survivor, I could see abusers use that moment to escalate things. They can burn down the house. And not that I'm saying Trump would literally do that, but theoretically, you know, he's already burning down the country and at least letting certain parts of the country burn, right? Like the California forest fires and Oregon and, you know, whatnot. But it wouldn't surprise me that he behaves like a typical abuser, which is to not respect the boundaries and the choices and the autonomy of those who who want him to stop. That parallel is so on point. It's amazing. You're right. He does display the, the typical pattern that we see in abusive uh, uh, relationships, right? Sometimes he'll say something like, well, if you don't elect me, right, then suggesting that the, the stimulus checks will be given if if he remains in office, right? So sort of using these threatening tactics to 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 force the person to stay, like if this was an abusive or, or if this was an abuser and, an, um, and a victim, which it is. I think we're all victims here to, uh, of his abuse. This is something that we would definitely see in, in the smaller scale. Yeah, actually, so that I saw a meme, which I shared in social media about that, this, the quote that you said, like, if you don't elect me, quote, is similar to, so the two analogies are, well, number one, you know, if you don't elect me, you're going to be worse off with the other guy is like saying to someone, if you want to leave me, then you're not going to find anyone better than me in a relationship. That's one analogy. The other analogy that uh, was relevant is he was at a rally recently and he said, if you don't, if I don't win, in other words, if you don't elect me, I'm, I might leave the country. And so that's a- akin to someone using emotional ma- manipulation and saying, if you leave me, I'm going to try to like commit suicide, threaten harm to themselves, or I won't be around for you anymore you know, to help take care of you, even though he's not doing any kind of caretaking. But but those those are the analogies that I saw online. And I'm so happy that people were able to make those connections as well, because that's actually, hopefully, the, you know, beginning point of recognition for women, which, you know, I've told you in the past, like, we are the minority disenfranchised group who don't have uniform agreement that we suffer <laughs> systemic and structural sexism, which is why so many women are in support of someone who is actually advocating for policies that hurt us and harm us. And so let's let's go straight into those policies. The first two episodes that we're going to be looking back on is Jennifer Block's book and then uh, Sophia, a survivor of gender and racial inequities in healthcare, and. Healthcare is actually on on the ballot. One of the biggest threats that Trump has been making for four years is that he's going to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act has helped to prevent women because being a woman is a pre-existing condition. And prior to the Affordable Care Act, you might be denied care or coverage because you had given birth before. That's considered a pre-existing condition. I think that definitely this is this goes back to, you know, the referendum on women that this book for me was so eye opening. I think you heard me talk to Jennifer and share how I think that every woman should read this book and give it to their daughters and granddaughters, because we need to know how the healthcare industry, in my opinion, is 
maybe not actively, but certainly passively conspiring against women by not centering our needs in research, by not training doctors and nurses in the medical profession properly about how to diagnose female-related conditions and treat them effectively and humanely and make it affordable and accessible. So that's my take. And I'm curious, I mean, obviously, you didn't read the book. What Was it sufficient to kind of open your eyes to? Yeah, to just listen to what what she had to say, what Jennifer had to say. I think that you saying that you're having an opinion, that it is your opinion that these things are happening. And based on what I heard, it seems like there is a lot of evidence supporting that opinion, right? Uh, one of the things mentioned in the podcast was what was when it was stated that uh, doc- doctors aren't trained necessarily in treating certain conditions like fibroids. And so to be able to treat that condition um, it's something very meticulous and it takes a lot of training. And because a lot of doctors aren't trained in that, they decide to do entire hysterectomies in order to uh, resolve the issue, right? So for a lot of women, this is this is extremely horrible for it to be uh, addressed in such a dr- dramatic manner, right? In such a drastic manner that will affect the person for the rest of their lives. That's just one example that just shows how women are not being treated, it seems like there's a huge difference in how uh, in the healthcare needs of a woman as compared to that of a man. I think power balance was different. It would, women would be treated in a more fair way in the healthcare system. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely the research aspect, which is that more funding is distributed to men's quote unquote diseases than women's, especially when, when you look at the proportion of illnesses and the prevalence that there's many conditions that disproportionately affect women and there are greater numbers potentially and also higher prevalence of for women to get those conditions or diseases and yet there's not that same amount of allocation of funding and funding you you put your money where your mouth is and if you care about women you then it's important to be able to allocate resources to make sure that what's going into our bodies, what we're putting inside, ingesting, or on our skins, or removing from our bodies, are being done in a way that's ethical and thinks about the long-term impacts. Like when you talked about the hysterectomies, it's amazing how, I believe the statistic was a third of hysterectomies are unnecessarily performed. So for example, endometriosis is a condition that Sophia had, and it's estimated to affect about 6 million women and cost billions of dollars as a result to our economy. And few research dollars are even allocated to that, to understanding it. And the worst part is, which I just, this just shocked me, that you don't even have an ability to confirm the diagnosis through a lab test for endometriosis. So the only way to confirm is through exploratory surgery. And there is no other condition, according to Jennifer and her in her book, whether it's male or female condition, where the only procedure of invasive surgery is required in order to assess if you have a problem or not. And you can't just do a medical test, a lab test. So that I think is outrageous because any surgery is risky, no matter how innocuous it might seem. 
Right. So, yeah, one of the things that you mentioned was how the healthcare system is, you're, you're right, it, it treats certain individuals very differently from other individuals, but money seems to also be a motivating factor in a lot of these procedures. So, for example, one of the things that, one of the disparities that I saw that this conversation reminded me of is how, for example, when Trump got uh, diagnosed with uh, COVID, he tested positive for COVID, he was treated very differently from the regular population, you know? I'm sure that the the doctors gave him medicines that were not necessarily something that the average person can get. And I I think in a similar way, women are not, everybody's going to be treated in the same way. And I think that when you had the conversation with Sophia, she, she gave some examples of how she was treated in the hospital based on the different people that she interacted with. Yeah. And so, you know, back to Trump, I think that's a great example is, number one, he received experimental drugs that are definitely not available to the public. The second privilege that he had was he actually got treatment before his condition worsened to the point where for the regular person, we have to wait until we're so serious that we need uh, to go to the hospital and possibly get hospitalized, right? Like there are certain symptoms that we need to have in order for anybody to even want to give us any drugs or treatment. And so for him, he received basically preventative or prophylactic treatment that helped to not possibly worsen his condition and maybe ward it off altogether. Who knows? Yeah. And it seems that right now his rhetoric is more along the lines of like, well, we defeated the virus. And this is one of the accomplishments that the Trump administration has done, despite the the fact that many people are still dying uh, in the United States of COVID and they aren't getting the same treatment that he is. I think that he probably uses his example as like, well, see, the virus isn't as bad. It's not, not, not a big deal. And I'm fine. And I was able to continue regardless of the virus. So I think that it's another one of those abusive tactics, abuser tactics that he's displaying. Yeah. And unfortunately, in terms of its impact on us and policy, looking at the recent Supreme Court charade of a confirmation, I think a big, I think Jennifer's book makes clear that an underlying reason for the medical industry and research and and all of these systems interacting together to deliver basically substandard medical care to women or give us unequal care is because there's such a rush to want to control our bodies and put aside our pain and dismiss any calculation of pleasure in the equation. So for example, you mentioned earlier, her book starts with the pill and the history of the pill, which is a form of hormonal birth control for women. And it's very apparent from reading that chapter to quote what she said, hormonal birth control is a form of harm reduction, not empowerment for women. So one of her interviewees said that because the offering non-hormonal methods gives women sexual agency. And if you are the one who's taking hormonal birth control, then it takes away the responsibility from your male partner in a heterosexual relationship from having to participate in decision-making around what he's going to do. And so if you say, I want 
you to, let's say, get a vasectomy, which is reversible, by the way, and as opposed to hormonal birth control and other hormonal interventions that do have a lasting effect on our bodies, on our fertility, on our health, etc. It's been suggested, like, why can't men get vasectomies and then they can reverse it later when they choose to have children? It has minimal impact compared to these other things that are being asked, that women are being asked to ingest. Uh, And part of the reason is because the system, patriarchal system, enacts all of these different controls, one of which is putting barriers from women to make decision-making on our own and to get pleasure from sex. And so that's definitely one reason. Right. I agree. I think uh, another way that uh, another barrier that women have uh, regarding their healthcare is their lack of information. I think that one of the things that was also mentioned was the reduced use of midwives to be able to help guide the pregnant woman through the whole process of pregnancy and, and, and delivering the baby. Since it, it, since they've been sort of phased out, it seems that that the the hospital has more control over all the different aspects of childbirth. So I think that it's also a lack of information and and, and other resources that is used as another tactic to control women's bodies. Yeah, and the midwives too, it's also about profit making because hospitals then get to make money from all these extra charges they could tack on to the bill. Like they could charge you for this medication or this person checking in on you versus a midwife who... Oh, and obviously the biggest thing that they could charge you for is a cesarean, an operation that many people don't want to have. And yeah, it may not be a necessary operation either, as, as we explored before. Exactly. And going back to uh, Sophia's experience, she had a hysterectomy, a partial hysterectomy. And the only reason she was able to get the assistance that she did that she demanded when she was in the hospital I don't know if you recall is because her husband was with her and he demanded it and so she had basically male privilege from having from being in a heterosexual relationship where her husband could exercise his male privilege to advocate on her behalf because her own advocacy was falling on deaf ears Advocacy is such an extremely important part of healthcare, and I feel like it really shouldn't have to be. But yeah, in that case, that that was a good example. I have another example, actually. Recently, one of my, uh, so I oversee uh, a social worker in my job, and her mother was recently put on hospice, and she was really going through a, a difficult time. And doctors wanted her to leave the hospital and go to a home and have the my social worker take care of her mother at home. And she wasn't aware. At first, she agreed to it. But then when she did her research, she realized that there's a lot involved in taking care of her mother. And she and her husband together were able to, to talk to doctors and ask questions and really advocate for themselves in order for, for them to realize that, you know, hospice at home is not the easiest thing. There's so much more involved to it. It's not just, you know, having her uh, at the home, but there's a lot of uh, supplies and a lot of materials that that can be more easily accessed in the hospital. Also taking care of of her mother isn't like, you you know, when you're so connected to someone, 
and you having to do a lot of these medical procedures is really difficult as a as a family member. So it's something that she had to research and advocate for herself in order for hospice to be taking care in the hospital instead. So I think it's just really, that's just another example of how uh, it's really important to advocate. And, and I think that Sophia really, really highlighted that, that, that advocacy is so extremely important that she also had to have that good relationship with the doctors. While some doctors are, are open to, to hearing her issues, others aren't. And, in, and it, it wasn't just her hysterectomy that she had to advocate for. She also mentioned that she needed to take, uh, you know, work from home, I believe, since she is a teacher. And she really had to, and she continues, I'm sure, to, to, to advocate for herself, to, for, her, for her safety and for, for her to be away from teaching in the classroom and for everybody's safety, right? And that was politicized because her doctor believes that all teachers should be in the classroom. And so politicized and racialized because she mentioned he's a Trump supporter who's, as a doctor, feels that teachers who are not in the classroom are not doing their job properly. And that there's a, one way of showing your commitment rather than, you know, taking into account, which is ironic because he's a doctor, taking into account the public health needs outweighing his individual desire for education to be expressed in a certain way under a pandemic. And it's, it just shows to highlight how poorly we, we treat people that are teaching our, our children, right, uh, in the education system. And it seems like a lot of our teachers happen to be female and it's basically an area in our society that we are not prioritizing despite its importance. So it just shows how society is misogynistic in general. That's, a, a, you know, for feminists, teaching and other professions like healthcare are predominantly staffed by women. And it's a way of showing that we as a society don't value women's labor, paid labor, and of course, let alone unpaid labor in the home. That's a different story altogether. Right. It reminds me of a, a little internet comic that I read where they have two people looking at, there's these two men play with uh, basketball shorts and have a basketball next to them. And they're looking at a limousine and one says to the other, look at that, look at that teacher. She gets paid over a million dollars a year and, uh, and we have to toil here playing basketball in order to earn minimum wage. It shows like the ridiculousness of like, why do we see this as, as a comic thing? Well, that should be the reality, right? Teachers should be compensated for doing so much benefit to society. Well, I, I mean, that's just an example of basketball players, but there's so many male dominated professions that really don't have the best interest in mind for society as a whole. Well, that's a whole different conversation around how especially black bodies, black male bodies are exploited by professional sports leagues. So under capitalism, their bodies are in some ways uplifted, you know, they're certainly compensated, uh, very few of them, but not not enough to account for the racism that they experience and the risk that they're putting their bodies through. It's like in football, for example, the traumatic brain injury was hidden for many, many years. And so I think that in general, this overarching capitalistic mindset of profit above all else, regardless of what kind of harm, 
is being inflicted is something that we really need to take a look at deeply. You know, in a previous episode, we talked about decolonizing wealth and capitalism is not at all something that's devoid of interrogation because of its colonial history as well as its patriarchal mindset of exploitation and extraction. Yeah, yeah, that, that's another conversation. Like, I guess, you know, everything really does does connect to the other thing, right? I, I, everything is so, so connected. And so that's why it's extremely important for us to talk about it. So before we go on to the next episode in our series, I just wanted to give this final example of, of how, uh, final two examples of medical treatments or devices that were made to treat women's conditions that really, I, I think, just are so deeply unethical. Um, thankfully, one of them has been proven to be so. And one of them was the power morselator. I think we talked briefly about it, but the book goes into much more detail. It was approved in 1993 by the FDA, and it's basically a hand blender. So just imagine, just think about the name, morselator, a power morselator. You have a hand blender that did not have a single clinical trial, okay? And it was used to look at or treat what was believed to be some sort of gynecological condition. I don't remember if it was like endometriosis or a fibroid that was in there, and it was a benign fibroid that was initially identified, but it was it was used to take away the fibroid. And, and then later on, you know, can you just imagine this blender, like you're like taking out what you think are benign cells, and then it turns out later, once you test them, they were cancerous. So previously, you had cancerous cells that were intact that you could have just removed with a scalpel. And now you've, now you've spread all of the cancerous cells in this woman's body who later died from cancer. So that's one example, which I just was horrified by. And another is transvaginal mesh. Okay, so this was supposed to be, was a permanent contraceptive, okay, so it was called Escher. So it's a, basically a non-surgical method of sterilization. And what happened was, number one, once it's implanted in your body, there was no way of taking it out because it kind of enmeshes. That's why it's called mesh. It enmeshes with the rest of your organs. And so it caused bleeding and pain and and then there were parts of it that were patients complained that they were migrating or shifting and then, then therefore punctured other organs that it was next to. So essentially, once it's implanted, it's permanent and irreversible. And what's the kicker is that this transvaginal mesh was never tested in humans. And it didn't come off the market until April of 2019, decades after it was first introduced. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, that's that's absolutely horrific to know that so recently we've been still using these these awful archaic methods that aren't tested. I think one of the things that you mentioned is that uh, a lot of testing and 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 trials are done for uh, that are done for the general population are done on men and men's bodies and not necessarily women who may uh, react to it differently. There isn't enough research done with women in order for their uh, healthcare needs to be addressed. So I hope that changes and that we are taking steps to do that. 
Well, you know, it requires education. Uh, we need to be informed about it, and then we need to advocate to our public officials to allocate funding for it. Absolutely. So I hope that uh, may- maybe under a different uh, administration, the advocacy can, can work to uh, make some of these changes. Well, I think the first thing we need to do, Michael, let's be honest, right? We have to center science because there's been so much science denial and subordination of science to myth and opinion, a science and fact, I should say, to myth and opinion, that we need to sort of, we, we need to help make it popular again for science to rule. <laughs> I mean, like, I've, I read an article recently, I think it was in The Nation, about the damage that the Trump administration has done to science in general as an institution, as a culture, is going to last for generations because you have the loss of funding. You have, obviously, with the pandemic, you have a lot of people leaving the field and then afraid to actually speak up about science because they're going to be, the, the truth in terms of the science is either being asked to be ignored or erased or denied. And so if you are a scientist and you know that some public policy position goes against what your understanding of the research is, and you're going to be retaliated against for speaking out, like Dr. Fauci, whose reputation is being maligned, then you're, you might not be worth it for you to be working in that field anymore. So I, I think we need to bring back science first. I really, really hope we can do that. Um, I think that does lead us into the next episode, since we're talking about politics, uh, with Suzanne Bordeaux episode 120, where she has, where she opens up that conversation about what happened in the 2016 election so we can learn from our mistakes from the past and and hopefully make better changes. Susan is a very well-respected cultural historian. And she said that up until her book, The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, which examined the sexism and misogyny that, and, and how it informed the decision and the outcomes of the 2016 election. Up until that book, all of her books had been very well received and covered by the academic and media community. And somehow that book, very few people wanted to read it or review it or promote it. And it was like a grassroots effort that she had to do. And, you know, banging this drum by herself, whereas everybody else was like, yes, it's true. You can blame Russia and you can blame Comey. But underlying Comey even is still this very deep rooted sexism and misogyny. Like, would he have done the same thing if she were not a woman? You know, if it were not Hillary, who has accumulated decades of attacks from the right, many of which are based on their own paranoia and their desire to discredit the feminist community. In the same way that people discredit scientists, I think a lot of people also discredit historians. In the same way that what happened to Hillary has happened before with other discussions where people talk about the shift where Democrats became Republicans and Republicans switched to uh, to Democrats um, of many years ago. I think that a lot of it is being discredited the same, same thing with the situation. I think that through this conversation, I did learn a lot. It was really highlighted how Hillary Clinton was treated differently because 
of just the fact that she was a woman. It, she was blamed basically for everything. And uh, it, it does seem that if you're comparing her to other politicians, that it's really unfair. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think people realize in this society how deeply our implicit sexism is so ingrained that we can't even see it when it's pointed out to us, that there's such a double standard. And number one, like how her reputation was constructed to begin with. It was this media in the 90s lashing out against her, first about her name, that she had you know, used her maiden name, then about her hair, and then about her appearance, and then about whether or not you know, she was supportive enough of her husband and took enough of a back seat. So basically, whether she adhered to traditional gender roles, they punished her for not doing so, for being an independent, strong, educated woman. And then the, the backlash continued and grew, where you had, as we heard from the brainwashing of our dad, you had a whole right-wing machine built to discredit women uh, and the feminist movement and using Hillary as an example of being a femi- femi- quote-unquote feminazi. Right. You know, I, I think that one of the things that I saw was how, despite the things the missteps and the, the the horrible things that Trump has done, people see his mistakes as, oh, he's one of us. So like, oh, maybe I don't know about this, or maybe I use language inappropriately. And that's sort of like what we want to be, what we aspire to be. I, I'm not saying me, but in, in general, like uh, especially Republicans, I would say. And then when they would see somebody like Hillary, not even make mistakes, just, just being what who she is, they saw that as quote unquote, oppression, right? I feel like in a lot of ways, and I think you kind of glossed over it, where it, they saw like sort of a mother figure that they wanted to sort of oppress it. And, and um, I, I guess a lot of people more identified more with someone like Trump, and they didn't want to identify with Hillary because of who she is. This goes back to the the Jessica Taylor conversation around why women are blamed for everything. So there's this trope that if you show up in the office and you don't like your female manager, it's because there's some underlying unresolved tension between you and your mother. You had mother issues and you're treating her in a way or responding to her in a way that doesn't acknowledge your unresolved mother issues because the workplace is a microcosm or replication of the family unit and dynamics. And so this is the case for women. Like we see our elected leaders as father figures and Hillary doesn't conform to the mother figure caretaker kind of role, you know, associated with traditional Christian quote unquote values. She's not the stay at home, obedient woman who who's baking cookies, as she said, right? In the 90s, the only time she got the most sympathy and the highest approval rating was when she was victimized and the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal happened. Then people became more empathetic towards her and her approval rating went up because she was being victimized, which I can't believe. <laughs> you know, you have to be hurt as a woman for people to care about our, our well-being. Which is just awful. Um it's funny you should say that because recently I saw a, a debate on the internet and it was shocking for me to find out that when one of the hosts said something along the lines of like, what do you, what do you think about, what do Republicans think about the uh, Amy Coney Barrett being in the Supreme Court? 
one of their criticisms was that she was a mother that should really be taking care of her children because they're so young and she really shouldn't be having a job like, you know, judge of the Supreme Court, <laughs> being the judge of, in the Supreme Court, because she really should be staying at home taking care of her children. And in the audience, which is mostly Republican, they were like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's the only thing about Amy Coney Barrett that they don't. So it's shocking that this sexism and, and these awful thoughts on women are, are just paramount, no matter who they are. It's just it's just ingrained in uh, American culture. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's too bad because, you know, she's she's a pawn. She's being used as a pawn to enforce gender roles, even if she's given some power right now and some visibility. Ultimately, it's going to harm her and all women for her to be siding on the side of policies and decisions that disempower women, that take away our right to make decisions about our own body and our right to privacy, our right to economic, political, and social empowerment and autonomy. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's very sad that a person like that has been put in the Supreme Court. I hope that things change. It's a really, really unfair situation. But yeah, you're right. I think one of the other things that you highlighted in that episode were comparisons to Bernie, which, by the way, I approve with uh, Bernie's policies. I think that his his rhetoric on on universal health care is great and, and free college. I think he has a, a he has a huge base of people that support him and that there's a lot of enthusiasm but at the same time, I do see that there is this trope that he's sort of the father. And if you're comparing him to Hillary, in a, in a lot of ways, I do agree that some of his base may may have worked against the election of 2016 election uh, against Hillary. So I, I, I see that as a flaw in society that really should be addressed because that that's not something that we should be promoting, the sexism. Let me remind you that, you know, universal health care was not something Bernie came up with. And actually, Hillary tried to work on it in the 90s, but people basically cut her down. And and we could have had a health care plan, universal health care plan back in the 90s, if they weren't so sexist and worrying about her appearance and what role she should have in her home. I, and I understand that, but another thing that that, that was stated in in your in the in this specific episode was that it seems like Bernie, like was he was the one who defined the progressive movement. It seemed that's strictly what the she said, what the author said. So it, it seems like, despite the reality, despite the the actual facts, it seems that the truth is that he, like like people have seen him as a leader in that way. So maybe misinformed, but it, it's I'm not the only one, right? Who who operates under these these assumptions. I mean, let's talk about Bernie. You don't, you don't have the book in front of you, but there's a whole section early on in the book where Susan shares quotes by Bernie Bros that are sexist, and I can't read them out loud because they have curses in them and they have expletives that are derogatory to women, and they basically incite violence as well, violence towards women, and so the fact that there's this subset, however big, of supporters that have now been labeled Bernie bros, and Bernie has not been as vocal as he should be to denounce them and their tactics, I think is a, is a big reason why I find his misogyny to be more 
important than his policies. Like, yes, you can support certain policies, but then it's kind of like, you know, we can look back on different points in history. There are lots of civil rights leaders, male leaders, who were fighting for black liberation. And yet, you know, at home, they were beating their wives. And the black women in the communities had to be quiet about it so that they could elevate race over gender. And, And now we're black women. Black women are now experiencing the intersection of sexism and misogyny and racism, misogynoir, in healthcare, in jobs, in all different sectors, in poverty and in income inequality. And, and they haven't been uplifted through the civil rights movement because black men left them behind. Okay. Um, let's say you're comparing Bernie to a person who may be fighting for rights but at the same time beating their wives at home like i no, i no, no. I, I, i'm saying he's i don't know what he's doing at home but he's definitely misogynistic and sexist and he's certainly not intersectional cuz he doesn't have much to say about race so all of his issues are women's issues healthcare is a women's issue education is a women's issue affordable college and in public education income inequality workers rights are women's issues and he doesn't center women he doesn't even talk about equal rights amendment like none of these things matter until we have the equal rights amendment as some sort of minimal enforcement mechanism because we have no enforcement mechanism if the category of sex in this country is not at the same level and in, in terms of legal protections as other categories. it's uh, We don't see sex as a strict scrutiny category. We see it as less than. Uh, okay, but can, can we also acknowledge this maybe despite the negative, and I agree that, that Bernie has a lot of, you could call him misogynistic, that's fine. I think that we can take a look at some of the positive things that he's brought up to the national dialogue. For example, if you can look like at uh, Andrew Yang, who brought up the idea of uh, UBI. I think Bernie has brought up the idea of universal health care and talking about how the 1% has more wealth than have most of the wealth and and power in in the country, right? Or all all over the world. The 1% has more wealth than the bottom 90%. Right. Having that as a discussion, I I think bringing that up to the conversation, I think has brought some good. If you're taking a look like, for example, MLK and all the amazing things that he's done, but at the same time, acknowledge that he's human, that he has, just like all of us, misogynistic views. I forget to bring exactly MLK cheated on his wife or something like that. Like, these are things that I think as human, we may acknowledge and we should definitely talk about it and address it. But in addition to what he's already brought up to the spotlight, I I think, yes, it's important for us to critique him on his misogynistic views, but at the same time, also talk about the positive things he's he's talking about. Or however many people say those sexist views is indicative of the whole movement. You're saying basically that we should separate form from function, that the function is that he's basically has good ideas and good policies that will help everyone, and the form and how he delivers it doesn't matter. So it's I didn't say it doesn't matter. Well, okay. The destination is more important than the journey of how to get there. No. I, I no? Didn't say that are you not, what are you saying? I'm not saying that the destination is more important. I say we should acknowledge those things as well, right? But I, I don't think that his form should overshadow his message. Like, 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 like I don't think the ends justify the means. Absolutely not. Because, uh, again, that's kind of like 
going with what Trump is saying, like, oh, we should focus on the economy at the cost of everything else. I don't think so. I think it's okay. It's important for us to acknowledge and bring up these these bad things that are counter to what he his overall message is. So we can have that as a discussion as well. I, I do think it's important. I'm not saying, though, that we should ignore that. Just to be clear, I, I'm not saying that we should ignore it. You know, there are a lot of people who have good ideas, too, like Elizabeth Warren. Why yeah. can't we just support someone with better ideas and better delivery? We should support. I agree 100 percent. Like in the primaries, I was always on the side of Elizabeth Warren that I would have much rather voted for Elizabeth Warren than Bernie. 100 percent. But when we're taking a look at like, let's say who is like the reason Biden is our elected Democrat is because people believed that he was more likely to win over Bernie, over Bernie, I believe was like the second, right? But again, Biden beat Bernie. So we're, we're, we're supporting Bernie. I'm sorry, Biden, because he's the one who we've elected to make sure that, that the Democratic Party can beat Trump. So I think when it comes to a lot of supporters, like Bernie has a lot of support. He has a lot of enthusiasm in his base, just like not to compare Bernie to Trump, but Trump also had a lot of, or he still has a lot of support in his base. And I think that we have to weigh those things out. Well, let's look at the ways in which this, I think, is a good segue into the last episode of Kyle Myers' book, Raising Them. So Kyle is a mom of a uh, child, Zoomer Coyote, and she and her partner have been raising their child without an identifiable gender publicly. And so they want their child to grow up and be able to access both sides of the gender divide and not be put into this box and stereotyped and not to internalize the socialization of messaging for one or the other, both of which have harms. So I, I'm wondering what you thought about this idea and what your response was to the book. Honestly, this was something that I did not know much about. One of the very first things that you mentioned was the gender unicorn. I, I don't think you went over uh, in detail. I did a little research and I understand now what it is. And I, I encourage everyone else to do some research because there is a lot to it. There's lots of gender, including identity and expression, sex at birth, and who you're physically attracted to, who you're emotionally attracted to, that could all be different. So it's something that helps me understand that gender isn't binary. It's not something that that, that that's as simple to, to identify. I think that um, in this episode, that conversation of how are you going to raise a child without necessarily assigning a specific gender to them, right? I think that in today's society, I agree, it's so difficult because every there's so many things that are gendered. You, you spoke about the toys, how toys are now gendered and a lot more gendered now than they were in the past, which is something that uh, is funny. I, I went to a toy store a couple of years ago and I saw cooking toy specifically for designed to, to show that for, for a girl, right? It was in the girl section and it was, it was like a kitchen set to teach. So and I said out loud, oh, sarcastically, mind you, I said, oh, look, it's so they can train our, our young girls for them to become good wives or something like that, sarcastically. And someone else laughed. And I thought, I, I'm pretty sure that most of us do see this, right? That we, we're assigning these gender roles to, to, to our children. And it, it clearly is a problem, right? If we're quote unquote, training 
our children to, to, to follow these gender roles, which sometimes have negative consequences, like lower pay in jobs, like even though that's a, a pretty issue that is a problem in itself, that we're taking a look at these differences and, and encouraging one over the other is something that I believe most of us see that there's an issue with, but the movement isn't as strong as it should be to change that. Well, I mean, I agree with everything you say. I think I think if we put anybody, any child in a box, it prevents them from accessing parts of themselves that could make them whole, that could make them enjoy things or be creative. The way we put boys in a box where to be strong, to have status, you need to be an athlete, you need to be assertive, you know, you need to dominate. And if a boy were to express an interest in being part of drama club or the band, then they're considered an outsider. They're ostracized. So for you to be both in the band and at football, you know, which is actually something that we saw a lot of in the TV show Glee, you actually could do both, right? You could be a football player and in and be interested in singing. But normally in real life, having access to all of your creative energy and outlets is not something that is encouraged in the home necessarily. Maybe it's encouraged in school, but in the home, I think there's a lot of traditional parents who see those behaviors or engagements as threatening to their child's status and therefore by inference threatening to their own status as a parent. Like they may be viewed as failures in their peer group's eyes. Right. Which reminds me of me growing up. I went to a school called Aviation. Aviation High School is, well, as, as long as where, when I went, I'm not sure if things have changed, but it was probably 90, 95% male and very few females because it, it was basically a school that promoted mechanics, like to become an airplane mechanic. And it seemed like very few women were encouraged to, to, to do that role. And so in a classroom, we would be mostly men, maybe there would be a, a woman in, in, in the, um, well, a girl at that age, we were in high school. So um, that is just like an example of how we, we don't encourage that kind of pathway for women. Now, one of the things that I'm doing currently in my job is I'm promoting a program called the new program, which helps women get into the union for apprenticeship in either carpentry or other uh, kind of apprenticeships. Now, these jobs are jobs that you can easily earn about $100,000 a year. But because it's so, to get into the Carpenters Union is so male-dominated, this program helps women find a pathway into that program. So is it is it hard for you to recruit young women who are even interested in this? Because, you know, I, I imagine that there's a lot of self-stereotyping that women have where, oh, I'm not good at this, I'm not mechanical that would keep them from wanting to do something like that. Which is interesting Interesting that you bring that up. I think that as we progress as a society, there are changes that have made that option more available to them and more people being more open to that. I have a class around of, of about 28, no, exactly 28 participants. And in that class, we had an interest, an initial interest of 10, of 10 women who wanted to uh, participate in this program. Now, ultimately, some of them dropped out, but that interest of 10 10 out of 28, that's, and just so you know, we have more uh, females than males in our our group. 
So that's a lot of interest in this program. So I don't think, I believe that maybe in the past, maybe this was not the case 20 years ago, but now a lot of women are open to the idea of working as a carpenter or getting into carpenters union or or the electrician's union. That's what we're promoting. And it, and we explained it. We had an expert, well, we had a person from the program talk to them about the benefits. So it's, it's not just the money that they're offering. It, it's basically the opportunity for them to work with their hands, because it, I think this is a great opportunity for them to use their hands instead of necessarily going into a college, like traditionally, which is like, a, you know, a four-year program. This is a two-year program where they're getting paid at the same time that they're learning. So they're learning, it's an apprenticeship, they have classes, and they also have, have to work and get paid. So I think us as a society, as a whole, and this is just a small example. Again, it's not representative of the, of the entire population, but from the students that I saw, I did see a substantial interest in moving towards this kind of career. I mean, I wonder how much of that is a function of COVID and a function of people just being more open to things that they wouldn't otherwise because there's insecurity and economic depression. That's interesting that you bring that up. I really don't know the answer to that. It seems that you're right. Uh, At this time, people are very desperate because they're looking for jobs. They need to be able to take care of themselves. And whether you're male or female, it, it doesn't matter at this point. You're going to want to have a job. And maybe they don't care so much about it. So I, I really don't know. I, I really don't know how to answer that. But maybe. Yeah, I mean, I would love to know once you get some data around how the teachers, the instructors in those classes are functioning and, you know, presiding over like an all-female class if there's, I mean, obviously there's no comparison because there are no men in the class, but I'm just wondering if there's any kind of behavior that can still show implicit bias, you know, implicit sexism in the classroom. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. And even if the uh, instructors may be female, because I know that some of the instructors are most definitely female. Uh, I did meet with the program and its organizers and the person in charge of the whole program does happen to be male, but the the coordinator and assistant is female. I'm not sure. I, I do believe this program is aware of some of the, these biases. So from what I know, I hope that's not going to be an issue. Yeah. And, and so this, you know, goes back to the question that I asked Kyle about Zoomer Coyote, which is how effective can it be if Zoomer Coyote is the only one in their class that's not being assigned gender, but everybody else is, and isn't Zoomer Coyote unconsciously internalizing those messages because Zoomer Coyote knows what their gender, uh, their gen assigned, what their assigned gender is based on their genitals and organs, right? That there's some sort of association still. It's, it's hidden to the outside world, but it's known to Zoomer Coyote. Zoomer Coyote has, has an opportunity to explore their personhood in a way that most of us can't. I, I believe that you're right. We are hindered by what we identify as. So, uh, and and so many things are excluded from me as a male. I do remember being told not to cry, not to, not to play with this toy. I I remember when I was probably six or seven, I was playing with my cousin who was female, who is female. And we were playing with Barbies and 
I was playing with the female Barbie and they, it was like, no, you have, you're Ken, you have to be Ken. And, 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 and even though, and, and thinking back, I remember being ashamed to admit that I was playing with Barbies as a little kid and me looking back at that, I see that, that, that there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that it would be great if all of us can follow these, not necessarily, I mean, it's a just personal choice whether you want to assign a gender to your child or not, but certainly you can encourage behaviors and access to toys, to clothes, to media, to books um, that are not gender specific and make you know the whole world available to your child, not just half of the world. Um, I think that would make the world so much healthier and happier. One of the things that was mentioned in, in this episode was that in general, our children are exposed to in the, in the media, even in books, to these already gender genders and how they've been assigned already. There's more uh, stories about boys and what they went through and less about uh, girls. And so it's less inclusive. So I, I hope that moving forward, I, I, I hope that more they, them pronouns are going to be used and, and, and for us to just include, to be more inclusive of, of, of everyone in society. Well, thank you. Thank you for this enriching conversation, Michael. And the next time we meet, it'll be after the election. So we don't know how that's going to be, but cross our fingers that we can move forward in a country united together to actually bring equality and justice for everybody, not just uh, maintain privilege for some of us. I'm hoping that we're moving in a more positive direction. Even if all hell is breaking loose, I'm, I'm hoping that, <laughs> that we are not going to be regressing. All right. And thank you so much for joining again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.